Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. From the widest gully to the deepest trench, holds define who we are and where we are going. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to start out talking about the existence of holes. Can you please try to keep your mind out of the gutter for this one? <laughs> you know, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. In my defense, I genuinely had not even thought about that. <laughs> I was <laughs> sure you had. <laughs> really had until you texted it. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, that's why you were so excited. I was like, I've never seen Tamler get this excited about metaphysics. The, the problem is, this is probably the bad time to talk about this paper, because not only am I from the University of Houston, but I am at the University of Houston, <laughs> in my uh, not soundproofed office. Yeah. That's, <laughs> you, feel you feel chilled? I feel chilled. I really do. You can write down on a little, scrawl a little piece of paper and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll repeat what it is that you want to say. <laughs> Tamler says, it up. Tamler says, pussies. <laughs> See, I made sure to get my, my office completely soundproofed. I can't be, I can't you be can't risky. can't be recorded. <laughs> uh, they need like some sort of like usually court sweep order. My, I sweep my room for bugs. The only recording devices in my office are my own. <laughs> Lester Freeman might be able to do it, but that's about it. <laughs> I just have a bunch of burners. <laughs> so, uh, so today, big, big episode. We're going to talk in the second segment about Borges's. We're going back to that collection of just treasures, those stories by... Um, Jorge Luis Borges. Am I doing that right? Yeah, very good. Very good. And, not as good as your, not as impressive as your French pronunciation. But <laughs> no, well, I know French. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to talk about his story, Talon Ukbar, uh, Tertius Orbis, or Orbis Tertius. Orbis Tercia. In the first segment, we're going to talk about a paper that you alluded to in our last episode. Um, well, it was actually an uh, Eon post um, called, Is a Hole a Real Thing or Just a Place Where Something Isn't? This is just, uh, we, we're just all, we're just <laughs> metaphysicians. Like, I feel like we're official, like after this episode. 
Just After call the last med- one and this one. Yeah, no, there's going to be some metaphysics. In fact, I am going, one of the, just as a tease, I will make the case that there are intimate connections between these two segments. Uh, the segment on holes and the segment on Borges's Talonic Bar. Yeah, it's, it's, it's metaphysics all the way down. On this episode. <laughs> Metaphysics this. all the way down. <laughs> nice. All right. So you want to talk about this whole paper? Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let, let's let's talk a little bit about last episode. So last episode, you know, I feel like it got lost in the shuffle. We spent a long time unfairly, perhaps unfairly, um, uh, critiquing a, a metaphysics paper. There's a couple things I want to say about that. One surprisingly little criticism and blowback about that i i think that metaphysicians just don't listen to our to our podcast because i was expecting a lot we got like one email saying like that was really unfair you didn't understand it and the bulk of the other discussion was like on reddit where people were trying to explain to us what what mobius strips were and i was like well that's not <laughs> that wasn't no, the Klein difficulty <laughs> and klein bottles i know like, what a mobius strip yeah yeah but that and that the, the clearly this paper was alluding to physics and and yeah yeah of course that's totally not what we were saying not. i think one of the reasons we're not getting a lot of critical feedback on that aspect of the episode is because and this is like in was one of our criticisms there are so few people in yeah. that literature that would care enough to be offended by that that <laughs> Uh, that that you know, like the chances are they don't listen. You I know? mean, that's that's the that's the plus of making uh, it, your writing inscrutable. You sort of avoid avoid well, too much. And having a debate that is populated by like twenty people or something, <laughs> like in the entire world, it is this you know mystical circle of um, <laughs> mystical mirror duplicate myst- yay, mystical circle jerk. <laughs> <laughs> metaphysical circle <laughs> um, but you know like i i definitely you know colleague of mine is a philosopher of mind here and you know it's very hard to find people who will die on the hill of that paper but <laughs> i'm sure they're out there and if you are you know yeah, correct say, us. say what's up show us uh, the error of our ways we did get some some people agreeing with us that it was inscrutable so so we decided that since we're getting no criticism, <laughs> yeah, we're just empowered. We're just gonna keep doing this shit. Just just every week, we're gonna find some somebody. It's like Trump. The tape comes out and nobody really gives a shit. So I can just say what I want. <laughs> That's right. Um, this one is actually, you know, I've I have to admit I've always been mildly intrigued by this topic. Um, the philosophy of holes and it wasn't until i read the Sion piece i still i don't i don't have nearly the same feelings i do about the other piece because the other piece i thought was was actually just just not saying much this i under at least understand what the problem is and i, I mean i still might not care but i get it like i, I get the discussion yeah I mean, I do too. I also, like, I, I, I thought I would have a slightly different reaction to it than I had. You know, I, I came in here with the purpose of doing a drive-by hit job <laughs> that we're famous for. But it's actually, like, well-written. It is. Like, 
the first uh the first so, paragraph like i thought this you know it seems indisputable that there are holes and now all of a sudden i'm getting ready to be like okay this is that's this is the right. dumbest thing ever for example right. there are keyholes black holes and sinkholes like oh thank you I, I needed examples. And there are holes in things such as sieves, golf courses, and donuts. But then, like, it, it's clearly a kind of a light tone to this whole essay. So, so she continues, and this is by Suki Finn. We come into the world through holes. And when we die, many of us will be put into speci- specially dug holes. But what are these holes, and what are they made of? You know, we come into the world through holes. <laughs> that is, uh, you know. No, I I admit that that uh, that that she 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 also turned me a little bit to to be on her side uh, through the right through up the until the last paragraph. I was totally okay with this. Uh, with this, <laughs> we'll get to the hanging chads. But this is what you've been asking for: real world relevance for a metaphysical debate. I, I have been asking for it. We can, we'll talk about whether this is an example of it or not. But um, but it's referring to a very famous paper by David Lewis. Did you have a chance to look at that? I did not have a chance to look at it. But by Stephanie and David Lewis. By Stephanie and David Lewis, yes. And, um, and it's just called Holes. And it is a dialogue. The whole thing is a dialogue between Argyll and Bargill. They have the same debate. Do you want to summarize the debate? Yeah. So let me uh, try to say at least what it's not, because I, I can preempt this. We already got somebody saying that, well, in topology and, and mathematics, there's a clearly defined uh, what they mean by a whole. And I I think that's that's not the, the point here. The The real point is, is a whole an object? And if so... How could we define what that object is in a way that is consistent with perhaps our usage of it Um, and not our just conventional linguistic usage, but what it really seems that we mean when we say a whole, like the obviousness by which we can call the thing in a donut a whole um, and the paradox when like if you break the donut, is there still a hole in it? Um, what, What constitutes the whole as an object? And, you know, in the way that only metaphysicians can, does that object exist? Is a whole an actual thing? Or is it just simply our language trying to say this is where something isn't? Like it's the absence of an object. Yeah. And so they, the way sh- uh, it's framed in the that there are three individually plausible but collectively inconsistent claims. And so you have to reject one of them. Number one, there are no immaterial objects. So that's like if you're a materialist or a physicalist. Number two, there are holes. Number three, holes are immaterial objects. They're not made of matter. And so they're inconsistent. You can't hold all three of them um, allegedly, and so you have to reject one. You know, you don't want to reject materialism probably. For th- right, this is reminiscent of the whole moral dilemma of rejecting e-categorialism. <laughs> right. No, no, but this one's clear. This one, right. Yeah. So, so for a materialist, at least, it doesn't. It's not satisfying to say, ah, you're right. There is. I have introduced into the metaphysical realm this new thing that is not material. Like you, yeah. you and and I think a lot of people at some level are materialists uh, about things. But but I have more to say about that. There, so then you're left with there are holes. You could deny that there are holes. Or you could deny that holes are immaterial objects. Right. Um, right away when I read this, 
to really give uh, Suki Finn credit, their writing is clear. I, I really do in, enjoy this writing. Um, but, but my immediate reaction to those three claims in conjunction is, so there, one is there are no immaterial objects, two is there are holes, and three is holes are immaterial objects. It seems to me that saying, is, like, there ought to be a clear way in which a hole is just a thing but not an object. I, I don't know. Uh, it's, Right? Aren't there plenty of things that we say exist, but that are just aren't objects? So like like the world of Talon or something. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the game of baseball. <laughs> Jack Dora. Yeah, right. Or, that aren't yeah. made of material. If you would say there are no immaterial things, well, yes, there are. There are plenty of immaterial things, like ideas. Um... Right. And it, it would be very weird to say baseball doesn't exist because you know, there's no there's no thing to be measured. So I I found it like okay, it seems to be starting with a firm commitment that holes are objects, um, and so that we have to yeah. that we would talk about holes as we would talk about objects. Um, I can't I can't shake the fact that like that. Well, that's there's the mistake in the right. I don't. Yeah, I agree. Like, it could be on an equivocation. Like, so maybe when you say there are no immaterial objects, it's sort of like, I don't want to deny that because I'm a materialist, I'm a naturalist. Actually, if you understand what you're committing to there, you would reject it. Yeah. So this is actually an interesting case where my temptation is to say, well, let's do the descriptive task. So, so Finn says, what about rejecting two, which says that there are holes? The problem with this is that we say, or saying such things as there's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza. And so we refer to holes. When we utter sing such a sentence or lyric, our words point to the hole in the bucket. If there are no holes and no such hole for our fingers or words to point at, then we need to reinterpret such sentences without making reference to holes. For example, we could make do with the language of objects being perforated rather than objects having holes. As such, my bucket is perforated, dear Liza. And I think, yeah, like that's exactly, that's ex- like I would really love to see a sort of a descriptive um, project in which you look across languages to see does everybody actually use a term that is objects like? Like it sounds like an object when they're referring to holes, or do they just refer as to th- this thing that is normally complete has an absence in it? Um, and I know that this is not. Right. For somebody who does metaphysics, they want the truth of whether or not there's such a thing as an object. But it seems as if it does hinge on the usage of the word holes, at least in English. That sounds late Wittgensteinian in a very (laughs) congenial way. I just remain, I shall remain silent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, so she says, uh, it is the bucket that is wholly shaped rather than there being actual holes in the bucket. But can every truth about holes be reinterpreted and systematically paraphrased as truths about perforated host objects? Um, ordinarily, we do not think that by simply not talking about something, it ceases to exist. Um, so she's, she seems to be arguing that we can't just replace the word hole and call it perforated objects. But I don't, I mean, maybe perforated isn't the right word. word like the Grand Canyon is not I wouldn't say it's perforated, but we might call it a hole in the earth. But, you know, I don't know. It seems I, I feel like that was the solution and that rejecting number two. I guess. Um, but I think so. If you go to the the paper and I, and I didn't read it 
closely, but there's this discussion of perforated and there there's all sorts of different problems with thinking of it that way. So Argal uh, or Bargal says, take a paper towel roller and punch a little hole in its side. Now you have a hole in a, in a hole lining. You'd have to say you have a hole in a hole. You have a little hole, which is part of a big hole. The big hole is not singularly perforated. And the little hole and the big hole are the same hole, since the little hole is a common part of each. And Argyll says, I think not. You speak of the big hole, but what you have are not two holes, two big holes, but the same laid end to end. There is also the little hole, not the same as either the big hole, which overlaps them both. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you can you can generate these weird counterintuitive paradoxes out of that solution, I guess is the point there. Right. Yeah. But but can I can I give like what I take to be the I I think that what Lewis is doing the Lewises are doing is different from like I I I take the Lewises piece to be a, a, a ultimately about meta philosophy and mm. that there's going to be this unresolvable unresolvable tension between our theories and common sense and you're it's it's always going to be a trade-off and it's never clear where that uh, equilibrium should end up. So, and I'll, I'll read you the last part of this since you haven't read it. So Bargill says, I see that I can never hope to refute you since I no sooner reduce your position to absurdity than you embrace the absurdity. And Ar- <laughs> <laughs> Argyll says, not absurdity, disagreement with common opinion. Bargill says, very well, but I, for one, have more trust in common opinions than I do in any philosophical reasoning, whatever. Insofar as you disagree with them, you must pay a great price in the plausibility of your theories. Argyll, agreed. We have been measuring that price. I have shown that it is not so great as you thought, it, and I am prepared to pay it. My theories can earn credence by their clarity and economy. If they disagree a little bit with common opinion then common opinion may be corrected, even by a philosopher. And Bargo says, the price is still too high. Argo says, we agree in principle, we're only haggling. Like the Churchill quote there, yeah. uh, I think it's being referenced. Uh, we do. And the same is true of our other debates over ontic parsimony. Indeed, this argument has served us as an illustration, novel, simple, and self-contained, of the nature of our customary disputes. So this is this metaphilosophical point where when you right. try to get when you try to reduce the world and the phenomenon to theories at, at a certain point you are going to depart from common sense and where you land on the usefulness of the parsimonious theory versus the counterintuitive conclusions that's you get there by haggling it's not uh, at least one that's way right. Event, that's yeah. right yeah, no, I think that's very clever, actually. Um, and, and you know, I'm curious as to whether the Lewis's... Let's use this whole problem, like, as a way to illustrate this point. Yeah. But now it seems like a, that it is, its own, like it is its own thing. And, and, and I have to admit, <laughs> I was not ready for this sentence. Why does this, all this matter what's in a hole? Well, one case that the whole expert Achille Varzi, professor of philosophy at Columbia University, cites, dot, dot, dot. Um, what... Oh, a whole expert. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, would... I mean, 
I know, I'm at work. I would have I, so business you need cards to, with you like a hole. Are in a soundproof location, you need to say something about a hole expert. Let's just say that hanging chads wouldn't be my number one concern. I feel like I would be a consultant for Pornhub. Um, how do we categorize? How do we categorize the amount of penetration that is going on in this sexual? Our, I would direct listeners to our episode 126 when we talked about Nagel's The Absurd, and there was a, an empirical essay about how we gauge the size of holes. And <laughs> That's guess, right with our tongue. With, well, the tongue was second best. I think toe was the best. That's right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I guess they took as just a given the metaphysic. Like, they just went in there with these blasé metaphysical assumptions about the existence right. of holes. Um, Just like a scientist. But keep reading that paragraph, because this is the paragraph that I have a problem <laughs> Right. So, uh, uh, whole expert Akhil Varzi, professor of philosophy at Columbia University, cites, is that of recount- recounting holes and ballots during the 2000 U.S. presidential election. In Varzi's words, quote, all of a sudden we realize that the destiny of the United States, if not the destiny of the entire world, depends on our criteria for counting holes. End quote. And in order to count the holes, we need to know how to identify and individuate them, and thus we need to know what they are. Granted, this is an unusual case, but a better understanding of where holes lie on the material-slash-immaterial and thing-slash-nothing divides should fill a gap in our knowledge of reality. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, all of a sudden... She lost you there. She lost you. She did. Yeah, she lost me, and I think this is... like I also think she lost the Lewises and their point in <laughs> right. that debate. So, first of all, let's see if we agree about this. There is absolutely no way that, a, that settling this metaphysical question that she's talking about would have had... could have, conceivably have, any impact on the hanging chad issue in the 2000 presidential election. I mean no as i understand it remembering everything that went on um this was about the intention of the voters and it doesn't really matter right it was just about the clearest way to determine what the intention of the person who punched who punched this hole or whatever like it, it would not whether a hole is a real object or not i cannot imagine it's inconceivable, Would, right? That that any <laughs> progress, like like like, no matter what kind of progress is made in this debate, if you call it progress, or, or like even if you set, like, there's no way that it would that it could in any way help. Uh, like she says, granted, this is an unusual case, almost sort of taking for granted that, but you know, like look at how important it was and a better understanding of where holes lie in the material, immaterial and thing, nothing divide. Like, no, I, there, there's all sorts of things that are factored into where you came down on that issue that have, and none of them relate to the, the metaphysical reality of holes. Right. There is something that, uh, that the, the, the most interesting part of this whole debate whole debate is is our usage of the term donut hole to refer to those little things that we buy (laughs) which aren't in any way um and this is something uh that finn doesn't doesn't point point out which i think has a clear implication for the philosophy of holes those things are never part of a donut (laughs) like if they were if they were they uh we would need to make as many donuts as we make donut holes and we don't (laughs) 
<laughs> these are made separately. So this goes to show that our usage of the term whole can, in many cases, be completely convenient and conventional and refer to nothing other than our desire to label something as such. There is no metaphysical lesson to be learned from Timbits and Munchkins. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll talk about what I think the connection is between. <laughs> yeah. But like the donut holes are like an example of a hronier. Where like, <laughs> you take some metaphysical theory and all of a sudden it makes itself present in the real world. Ooh, that's right. The heresiarch Akil Varzi. Uh, <laughs> so I think what the Lewis is, and I could be wrong about this. Metaphysicians, feel free to correct me on this. But what started as a metaphilosophical point about the tensions between theory and, and common sense ends up just taking on its own reality as this actual debate. And then in that last paragraph, then you see this attempt to actually make it matter in the real world in a way that it couldn't possibly. Yeah, I have an, a, an, an analog uh, case. Since we have, we have uh, failed in our repugnance um, recently, this is a discussions I've really had before. Um, and I think what I'm do like I'm not, I'm I'm not being a realist about the ontological status of this. In, in I don't think that I should be, but it is nonetheless an interesting discussion. And that is what counts as a one night stand. Um, <laughs> and I remember I've had very long, very long conversations about whether if you sleep with somebody whom you don't know it, one night, and then you wake up and you sleep with them again in the morning, have you had a one night stand, <laughs> or have you not? Or suppose that the first time you slept with somebody, every intention was that you were in love and you were going to get married, but that person gets on an airplane and the airplane crashes. Did you have a one-night stand? Oh, that's interesting. I <laughs> like that one. I mean, the first one just strikes me as, yes, it is, but, you know. So, so like, uh, yeah, this is this is... This is the case where it's fun to talk to to people where you could say, well, what about like two days in a row or something? Where you know. that, is that two single one night stands or is it one one night stand or are there no one night stands? Also, how many threesomes have you had if you've uh, multiple times slept with the same two other people? Well, if you said like you had three threesomes because you were referring to three nights in a row of having sex with the same two people, are you lying? Right. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this over and over again, but like it's the same thing with a sport or, you know, like is bowling right. a sport is right. like it's not like there is a platonic reality of these things. It's just we're trying to figure out how we use the the word. Yeah, but I think that the philosophers of holes um, would disagree with us. Um, anyway, <laughs> we are no disrespect to Suki Finn. Certainly, like, actually, respect very, to her yeah, for writing. Uh, yeah. yeah, but <laughs> kind of an entertaining article, although emphatic disagreement with the orientation that is taken at the end of yes. her article. <laughs> but at least it's entertainingly written. Yes. Understood. Even if it will end up leading to the destruction of our own reality. Yeah, I know. I, um, but I do like the phrase ontological parsimony. I'm just going to object every time somebody says something I don't like. I'm just going to say, you're not being ontologically parsimonious and hope that they don't ask me any follow-up questions. <laughs> I've always. never heard of Timbits. Yeah, because they're, they're from uh, Tim Hortons, which is largely in Canada. Uh uh, All right, uh, we'll be right back to talk about Borges. <laughs> I was going to say, are you going to actually say it? <laughs> Talon. 
Ukbar. <laughs> All right. <laughs> At this moment, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week, our episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you again, Tamler, from one of our favorite charities, um, Give Well. This time of the year, many people want to give back. I know I do. But it can be overwhelming to choose where to donate. Email inboxes are full of messages from charities asking for support, letters doing the same. So when you're choosing about from all these charities, um, go to givewell.org. It's a resource for donors like you, or even if you're not a donor and you're just looking to give to your first charity, maybe you have that first job, maybe you have a little bit of extra money and you want to do good. Doing good is easy at givewell.org. GiveWell is unique in that it looks for charities that do the most good in terms of lives saved or improved with every dollar donated. It recommends nine top charities that have met its exacting standards. These groups are highly evidence-backed and help the poorest people in the world. For instance, one of GiveWell's top charities, the Against Malaria Foundation, distributes $5 nets to prevent malaria and avert child deaths. Another GiveWell top charity, Give Directly, gives cash directly to poor people to buy the things that they need most. All of these are backed by rigorous studies. These studies support the programs as having a large impact on the people they serve. I'll say it again. GiveWell has the best nerds doing all of the research for you. And they make all that research available. So if you really want to look at it, um, if you want to comb through it, pour through it, crunch the numbers, if you're that type of person, go ahead and check them out for yourselves. If not, do what I did. Just trust them. Go give a little bit of your money on this holiday season's. We did. Um, so we just had Hanukkah. Hanukkah is already over. Who told you about Hanukkah? <laughs> yeah, I was maybe. <laughs> there's a chance I was reminded uh, when it started by a certain non-Jewish podcast co-host. Um, but anyway, uh, two nights out of the eight, uh, Eliza gets to choose to give to a charity instead of getting a present. And this year, one of those nights, she gave to GiveWell.org. That's great. That's a good idea. We only have one night for for the Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll at least add it. We hoard we hoard the nights. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Go to www.givewell.org and leverage those thousands of hours that staff has put into finding exceptional charities and also give yourself the gift of the warm glow knowing that you've made a difference, an actual difference with an impact that's measurable in the lives of people who really really uh, need it. So we'd like to thank GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Again, it's www.givewell.org. And if you get a chance, let them know that you came from Very Bad Wizards, but more importantly, just give.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment to thank all the people who get in touch with us, who email us, who contribute to the subreddit that has been started for the podcast, who like us on Facebook, who tweet us, and who just get in touch with us in all the various ways that you do. Um, to do that, you can like us on Facebook. You can become a subscriber to the Reddit, Reddit subreddit. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us, at Tamler for me, at Peas for Pizarro, and at Very Bad Wizards for both of us. You can support us in more tangible ways. Two of those ways don't require any money at all. You can rate us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, help us move up those rankings. Um, you can go to our support page, click on the Amazon link, and and then do your shopping at Amazon after you've clicked on the link, and we'll get a small cut of that. And finally... You can uh, also support us by giving us a one-time donation via PayPal. This is on our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. And finally, you can become one of our beloved Patreon patrons. Um, give us a, a certain amount of money per episode, and we, we love our Patreon patrons. And we're about to record, in fact, a long-promised uh, bonus episode on Sorry to Bother You, and I swear we are very close to also doing another Twin Peaks bonus episode, me and Natalia and Jesse. So you're, there's two that should be coming. One that's going to be coming this week, in fact, very soon after this episode drops, and uh, another soon after that. So thank you all. We really appreciate all your support, all your interaction. Absolutely. Can I just say really quickly, um, because I didn't say it in, in the beginning segment, that one of the things that was really nice about last episode is the number of comments, tweets, and emails from people about the replication stuff. Um, friend of the podcast and host of Black Goat, Pod, Black Goat Podcast, co-host Sanjay Srivastava sent out a tweet um, with a little link to the Reddit uh, quote, and I was just actually surprised at how how much people I don't know I guess appreciated what I'd said. I thought it was kind of obvious to say, but um, that's just one of those cases where the interactions with with our listeners um, mean mean a lot to us. And uh, getting a nice tweet from Sanjay that's uh, <laughs> he, was, he is one of the cantankerous ones who started <laughs> who started the uh, <laughs> normally he's just telling like strangers to keep their fucking dogs away from his kid <laughs> Sanjay is a sweetheart in person on twitter he's you know he's allowed to be a little bit more more aggressive um so thank you everybody yeah. all right, let's move on to today's main topic um which is as tamler you point out metaphysics of sorts but it is in the form of a fictional short story by our at least behaviorally favorite fiction author um jorge luis borges called talon ukbar orbis tertius what do you mean behaviorally uh, I mean that is if you count up the number of fictional things that we've talked about that this would be, this would this is economists refer to as revealed preferences. Like it, it might be behaviorally, but he he's also just starting to be my favorite author, yeah, at least no. like the one I'm most into right now. So uh, this is a story I read a long time ago, but I, I think a few people, a few of our listeners, actually suggested it. 
Well, you read it first. I did. Yeah, and, I thought yeah. you had read it, and then I was reading it. I mean, I had I didn't read it a while. Like, anybody recommending it? So, I, th- there is this thing when you read his stories where you like at any point, like it could just change. Like you feel like it might change the whole way you look at the world, and you know, unsettle just how you perceive reality in all sorts of ways. I, I mean, we the metaphysical vertigo that that comes from the the stories that we've read and discussed here is far better than than that i that i get from any any philosopher right and this is uh, i would i would know. agree this is a very yeah. philosophical story but and it is explicitly philosophical right yes, explicitly uh, um, and we'll talk about how but um uh, you want to just describe the plot and then i'll broad strokes because this is actually a story in three parts and each of the three parts is very different it takes it's three different time times um there is a time time one um <clears throat> there is a follow-up uh that takes place two years later and then there is a um a third part which is written in 1947 which is something like five years after the last part and is actually in the future so i think borges published this in 40 40 just 1940, 1940 yeah so it's seven years after that right so um i actually uh, i found a blog post by what appears to be just an English student who had to, who was assigned this to read in English a few years ago, Rachel from 2011. I'll put a link to this. She summarized it just just about as good as I mean, much better than I could, and more efficiently. Uh, Tlonukbar Orbis Tertius. <clears throat> a man reads an encyclopedia. The encyclopedia talks about a fantastical world called Tlon. Tlon actually turns out to be made up. The people who made up the world and wrote the encyclopedia article called themselves Orbis Tertius. Orbis Tertius turns out to be a centuries-old secret society dedicated to making up lots and lots of stories and encyclopedia articles about Tlon. Eventually, most people in the world find out about these stories and encyclopedia articles. They read them and think that the stories are real because they start believing that they're real. They start acting like make-believe Tlon people are supposed to act, and the real world changes to be the world of Tlon. Weird things about reality change. For instance, things start existing only because people want them to exist. So that does not preserve the structure of how the story is told. No, I'm not even gist, sure I agree it's a good summary of the plot. Of it's as plain. It's a very, very plain English summary. What, it, what, is, what is true about it is that there is a fictitious encyclopedia entry that then uh, it turns out that the world that is described in this fictitious encyclopedia entry was, uh, was made up. Um, it uh, by a secret society. They made up a country called Ukbar. Well, so yeah, um, like so. There is this. It's the encyclopedia itself. Is it's is, there's only like one of them, right? Because it's the, it's the exact duplicate of an Encyclopedia Britannica, but with four extra pages at the end that describe Ukbar. Uh, uh, that's a, right. What turns out to be a fictional land. <clears throat> that's right. So part one is in the first person. Uh, Borges is talking, and this is one of the great things about this story is uh, it is inserted with a lot of autobiographical sort of uh, uh, perspective. Borges talking about his actual friends. So in the beginning, um, uh, Borges is talking to a friend of his named Bioy Casares, who is a real uh, author, and Casares gives him a quote. Um, he says, one of the heresiarchs of Ukbar had stated that mirrors and copulation are abominable since they both multiply the numbers of man. So Borges' fascination with this quote and who this heresiarch from Ukbar would be and what Ukbar is, it's sort of what gets the story going. And his friend says, 
Oh, no, no. It's this country. I, I read about it in this encyclopedia, the Anglo-American Encyclopedia, which Borges points out is just a bootlegged copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And in this particular volume, there is supposed to be an entry on Ukbar at the very end. So they go and look for this encyclopedia, but it's not there. It actually is missing. It would be in the place of the very last entry, but but it's not there. And Borges thinks that his friend was just making some shit up to say that cool phrase. Right. <laughs> right. Um, which is great. He says, I suppose that this undocumented country and its anonymous heresiarch had been deliberately invented by Bioy out of modesty to substantiate a phrase, which is a very nice way of saying my friend was lying to sound cool. So, um, they finally are able to tra- so able to track down a other copies of this Anglo-American encyclopedia right they, it turns out there's only this one copy as you said even the the quote the, about the mirrors is it turns out in part 1 to be a different quote like the guy remembered it wrong that's and, right and the actual quote is uh it goes like this for one of the those gnostics the visible universe was an illusion, or more precisely, a sophism. Mirrors and fatherhood are hateful because they multiply and proclaim it. So that's the actual quote. I mean, that's in the right. fake encyclopedia, but it's uh, or the 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 singular encyclopedia, and um, which is itself a reproduction of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So there's like all sorts of like already you have this kind of Plato's idealism, right? Like it's this idea of mirrors as taking us away from reality. And the encyclopedia itself is a copy, which is taking us away from reality. And all this stuff is just packed into those two little quotes and these this little I mean, this is the first like page of the story. All of this, this gets the, gets put in. But we it's very. Yeah. It, so, you know, it opens out with him having uh, just a conversation with his friend and the conversation that he's having that his friend was talking. He says, talk to us at length about a great scheme for writing a novel in the first person using a narrator who omitted or corrupted what happened and who ran into various contradictions so that only a handful of readers, a very small handful, would be able to decipher the horrible or banal reality behind the novel. (laughs) And I couldn't help but think, this is something that in our discussion of the Garden of Forking Paths, one of the potential conclusions that we were reaching at the end was that the whole story was... In fact, a banal one. It was the made-up musings of a guy who was about to be uh, executed. And so he made up this fantastical story. um, Like, justify himself. Exactly. It's an unreliable narrator. It's written in the first person. I feel like Borges is already already telling us, by the way, I'm writing in the first person. And, And it turns out he has filled this story with a number of real facts and a number of completely made-up ones, yeah. the encyclopedia being the very first example we get of, of a copy that's imperfect, that has added a fiction to it. Can we talk about like Plato's idea of, re- of um, reality and the successive mirror replications that take us further and further away because i think it's important and it's definitely it's not explicitly like alluded to but it's it's 
it's clearly alluded to, I think, in the opening and also in the end. So just really briefly, I mean, you can think about it as the cave. So in the cave, outside the cave is reality. There's the sun, and that casts light on real objects outside. But what we see, the run of humanity, are shadows that are cast by a fire of artifacts of the things that are outside. So, like, there'll be, like, a cardboard cutout of uh, a tree, and we see a shadow of that, and that's that's what we think is a real tree. But, in fact, it is a shadow uh, of a... Uh, of an artifact of a tree. And and what Plato said in Book 10 of the Republic is that he thought art was like this, or our art could be like this, where it is a copy of a copy of a copy. Like art just takes you further and further away from reality by doing these successive copies. It is actually the case that he didn't want art in the Republic. It, it it is actually the case that that's what he says for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's very critical of any kind of art that would distort the reality because which is already distorted. He thought because it can only be discovered intellectually, not through our senses. The senses all our senses already trick us into thinking something is real when it's not. Like when he says, for one of these Gnostics, the visible universe was an illusion, or more precisely, a sophism. That's like a that's Plato's idea in the Republic and, and other dialogues. Again, it's sort of gesturing at that. And in fact, it's gesturing in a way that uh, you meet Gnosticism, which is sort of a, a term that's used to loosely uh, bring together a number of heretical early Christian beliefs, um, was itself very clearly influenced by Platonism. So Neoplatonism is at the heart of Gnosticism in the early in the early years yeah. of the Christian text. So he is already just being very, you know, and it, and it is the case that a lot of the people that we would call Gnostic are um, did reject this world as reality, um, and they were usually dualists. Um, they often believed that <clears throat> the material world was completely imperfect, and um, this led them to either abhor all of the pleasures of, of this world, or in some really, really cool cases, believe that it mattered not at all how many pleasures you indulged in, <laughs> because this world didn't matter. And um, it was often believed that this, this world was actually the creation not of God, real God, but of a demiurge of some sort. Um, that was just fucking with with human beings, which um, is also a Cartesian idea, right? The, yeah. the, the Descartes' yeah. evil genius or evil demon. So, That's right. all of this um, is being t- tied together under a kind of category of idealist, philosophical idealist views of reality. Um, and this is like in the first six paragraphs, there are crazy. already so many ideas that we like, there's no way we're going to get through all of the ideas. No. But um, before we go through like the story, should we give, do, do you have a take on this, like an interpretation of what he's up to? I suspect you have a, 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 a more of a take. Um, I I don't know. Maybe it will emerge that I do in in our conversation, but I don't have like. Let me just give mine because 
Yeah. I think that then as we go through it, it'll help me at least having it out there. I think there is a way to read it. I don't think it's the right way necessarily. And I'm sure I'll have, you know, 15 different interpretations by the time, you know, we're done with this conversation. And there is a way to read this as like my spirit animal or like spirit story. Like (laughs) it is in just 10 pages, the distillation of all of my discomfort with theorizing, with monism, with a kind of uh, unearned universalism, um, with this illusion or appearance of objectivity or of objective order, right? Like that I'm, I, I have been, if there's one thing that I have been consistent on is my discomfort with this idea of a, a need to have the world ordered and then a pretension to have ordered it in that way. Like it is about the kind of seductiveness of of all grand philosophical systems and how that dis- seductiveness can actually lead to real world destruction. So, I mean, it's interesting and we could talk about this idealism that the, the, the notion of idealism in this Barclay and idealism that things that, that all of existence is merely the, the perception of existence. Um, <clears throat> it turns out to be true in this story. <laughs> well, no. I mean, well, it turns out that the minute that people become aware of the radical idealism of the fictional world, Talone, that was supposedly the product of a real world, Ukbar, which was in fact itself a fictional world created by Neoplatonic secret societies, <laughs> <laughs> that the hardcore idealism of this like uh, meta, this third world, yes. is actually in, it makes its way into our existence right. and starts changing reality because people believe it. Yes, that's and, right. And therefore destroys it, right? Yeah. Now we can yeah, go. I just wanted to get that out there and yep. let's go through Yeah, that's the, good. So, that's good. I, so they've they found this encyclopedia, but they're sort of flummoxed, and that's the end of part one. And that's the end of part one. So part two picks up um, a couple of years later. Um, Borges is opens it by reminiscing about a friend of his father named Herbert Ash, who was a described as a very sort of plain Englishman. Um, one of my favorite quotes for this is for all our English listeners. This captures you guys so well. Uh, He's describing the friendship that he says, my father and he had cemented, the verb is excessive, one of those English friendships which begin by avoiding intimacies and eventually eliminate speech altogether. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so uh, this was an intellectual friendship. Uh, They exchanged books and periodicals. They played chess. Um, He says, one afternoon we discussed the duodecimal numerical system in which 12 is written 10. Ash said that, as a matter of fact, he was transcribing some duodecimal tables, which we'll then learn is for that secret society. Although he doesn't for really the know, he's sort of a minor he, member of that secret society. Well, or he's being used by the secret society. Yeah, yeah, right. The first two sentences of the second part: some mm-hmm. limited and waning memory of Herbert Ash, an engineer for the Southern Railway Line, still hint- lingers in the hotel at Andrage. Among the effusive honeysuckle vines and the illusory depths of the mirrors. That's the first yeah. sentence, and you get that. And then, in life, Ash was afflicted with unreality, 
as so many Englishmen are. That's like the introduction to him. He was afflicted with unreality as so many Englishmen are. And when you first read that sentence, it's like, oh, like that's funny. That's a funny. Yeah, right, right. He's like making fun of English culture or something. And and in fact, I just thought of it now, the fact that he didn't have that many bonds with other people, apparently, yeah. um, right? He, he says of, of his, it could be that because not enough people believed or had the idea of Herbert Ash in mind, he was in fact a pale metaphysical ghost, <laughs> right? That it, what, requi- what is required in idealism is that people believe in it, uh, in the idea, and that's what brings it into existence. And perhaps not enough people were around to believe in Herbert Ash himself, so he was actually a pale reflection. Um, and we should say and that he the, dies. I didn't say this. But in the, in, he the in the story, he dies, and that's what leads to the discovery of exactly the whole great uh, uh, conspiracy about the creation of this fictional land somewhere in the Middle East of Ukbar. And I, this is what I wanted to make sure we make clear: Ukbar is this fictional land that, in this story, um, is. The conspiracy is to insert real references and real, you know, it's like Wikipedia trolling, um, insert enough uh, references to this land of Ukbar that supposedly t- is, is, is a part of, of real earth. And in Ukbar, the culture is such that the only thing that they write about, all of their literature is a fantastical fiction describing the planet Talon. And so Talon and the ideas in Talon are the ones that end up being central to the story. But Ukbar people, uh, human beings are imagining Ukbaris. Ukbaris are imagining Talonites or whatever. So then you get, again, that two removes or three, if you remember that this is a story. This is also a story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which he tries to, you know, he's, I think it's good that he is writing this in the first person because you would be popping up too many stacks. It would be, it would be, it's already difficult to keep track of it. <laughs> it really um, It's very important. <laughs> so let's now um, say what Talon is. Right. So, uh, so Talon, they end up tracking down uh, f- after the death of Herbert Ash, the, a complete version of the 11th volume of, a, of an encyclopedia of Ukbar. In, in that, there is a description of Talon of their mythology. Who were the people who had invented Talon? Uh, the Ukbaris. The plural is unavoidable because we have unanimously rejected the idea of a single crater. We conjecture that this brave new world was the work of a secret society of astronomers, biologists, engineers, metaphysicians, poets, chemists, mathematicians, moralists, painters, and geometricians, all under the supervision of an unknown genius. Um, and these were the people who all uh, conspired to create the mythology of Ukbar and within Ukbar, the mythology of Talon. Um, and the world of Talon is one in which idealism, that the idealism of, of Bishop Barclay, which we should is, describe. We should, we should, yes. As I understand it, this is, you know, his famous quote is, as says, percipi, to exist is to be perceived, that, uh, Perhaps quite literally, unless anybody's perceiving you, you don't exist. Nothing exists unless it is being perceived. It Existence is in the mind of the perceiver, right. which might lead you to really, really doubt whether or not there is such a thing as reality. And I believe Bishop Barclay got ar- around this by saying, well, that is exactly what God is. God is perceiving everything, and therefore we don't need to worry about our yeah. ontological status. Right. And it seems like ontolon... They take the idealism, this idea that nothing exists unless it's perceived. Everything is just an idea. There's no material reality to anything. It's just 
uh, being perceived is what cre- is what creates it and sustains it. And if it's not perceived, it'll uh, no longer exist. But it doesn't have the God that is perceiving everything. That's right. So, uh, in fact, we find out that like one of the one of the core members of the uh, the financer of the whole of yes. the whole endeavor to create this fictitious world was like, make sure you don't include none of that Jesus shit in here. We don't want the Berkeley's Jesus. bailout, uh, the Barkley bailout of there being a God. Yeah, and it is a bailout because like that allows him to to just get out of all the counterintuitive ideas that like when i leave my office like (laughs) everything will disappear because there's nobody to perceive it anymore and then it will immediately come back in exactly the same state that it was in before when i uh come back to perceive it like that's but according to barclay God is perceiving it the whole time, so it does have a sign of sustained existence. But right, in right. Talon, the people don't believe that. They they are folk. Their folk psychology is that of idealism, yeah, right? If Josh Nobran had studied there, everybody would assume that the paper disappears if no one's looking at right. it. That's right. just like and, their default. Right. And so uh, Barry says, Hume remarked once and for all that the arguments of Barclay were not only thoroughly unanswerable, but thoroughly unconvincing. This dictum is emphatically true as it applies to our world, but it falls down completely into loan. The nations of that planet are congenitally idealists. Their language with its derivatives, religion, literature, and metaphysics presupposes idealism. And in fact, they don't have any nouns in their language. In one, in one hemisphere, the people have a language that is solely verbs. Um, and in the, in the other hemisphere, they have a language that is solely adjectives. And this is because uh, this for Borges, would capture more the reality that there is no permanence. There is no thing that over time maintains its identity. So to say that there is this cup in front of me um, presupposes that the cup has continuity of existence. Right. Um, when uh, there is, there might be something that is being perceived currently, but there is no thing that you can track so, over time that can be called an object. And it's interesting that they have different ways of conceptualizing this in the southern and northern hemispheres of Tolkien. Right. There is no the, noun the that corresponds to our moon, our word moon, but there is a verb uh, which in English would be to moonate or to moon. The ruse, sorry, <laughs> the moon rose above the river is upward behind the on-streaming it moons, and I don't know what the it is there, but the right. And I mean, he points sort of points to this difficulty, like, well, yeah, there has to be some sense in which these strings of verbs or adjectives are describing a, a, an object. And then on the other hemisphere, they don't say moon; they say aerial bright above dark round, <laughs> or soft amberish celestial. Uh, like right. so, they just uh, a bunch of adjectives. Um, yeah. to describe something, but it's never the same thing, so they never have to have the same way of describing it because it's always a different thing based on how it's being perceived at that time. Right. So Borges uh, says, the fact that no one believes that nouns refer to an actual reality means paradoxically enough that there is no limits to the number of them. There is a um, multiplication of what, what we might call objects, but there is just, you know, it's, it's sort of like Zeno's paradox. There's no discrete number of objects because there is, there aren't any objects. So I can refer to Tamler right now, Tamler in a second from now, Tamler right. tomorrow. Um, and I'll like, which, I'll be dressed differently tomorrow. So 
you won't think of me as the same Tamler. You'll just like describe me by my shape or chiseled chin. And in fact, there is no there is no natural division between the identities. And so Borges refers to the practice of some um, people in their uh, critical theory, right when they're when they're discussing works of art, to just arbitrarily sort of combine works of art by two completely different people. Because what's the point of calling it one single person? We know that that doesn't exist. <laughs> and, um, and this is a really fun part of the story because you're learning about this world. And there's no, there's no dread that is coming. There's just a mystery, and the mystery is sort of slowly being solved. Just a ton of just great philosophy um, mm-hmm. is is being is being played with. Um, I love this quote where he talks about. Um, so he says at the beginning of one paragraph, this monism or extreme idealism completely invalidates science. To explain or to judge an event is to identify or unite it with another one. Oh, you have a uh, different translation on. than I do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, okay. I do. Um, then he says, the metaphysicians of Toulon are not looking for truth, nor even for an approximation of it. They are after a kind of amazement, yeah. which is one of my favorite. Uh, so this is my translation. The metaphysicians of Toulon seek not truth or even plausibility. They seek to amaze, mm-hmm. astound. In their view, yeah. metaphysics is a branch of the literature of fantasy. I mean, I feel like that's what we've been feeling with our <laughs> recent discussions. Of I mean, this was like when I read that sentence the first time, like I was just like, oh, have we been too hard on metaphysics? Maybe that's what they're doing. They're like, I mean, they're, it's they're, like they're a story. Good job. They're telling <laughs> <Yeah>. a story. <laughs> no, it's kind of a boring story, but it's a story. <laughs> Right. One of the schools in Salon has reached the point of denying time. So Borges is kind of building up the what what would follow if you had a culture of a, a, a group of individuals who really, really took idealism to its to the extent of it. There, there is a school in Salon that's reached a point of denying time altogether. The reasons that the present is undefined, that the future has no other reality than as present hope, that the past is no more than present memory. And there's a footnote uh, to Bertrand Russell's yeah. uh, idea that that we, you know we have no good reason to di- to discard or to the the po- potential that we have all been created yesterday um, yeah. with memories of, of everything. Right, or ten minutes ago, and that's the, exactly. Uh, and, and that's that's a real quote. Like unlike some of the footnotes, which are fictional, right. This is a real idea that Bertrand Russell's had. But I think the idea behind and I, I should have looked this up but i didn't but i think the idea behind it is this is something that we can't refute yeah. but we know is false like at some level like we can't really believe that it's true and it's just the opposite on talon where they just assume it's true right. that the world was created just seconds ago or, and that we were created just seconds ago because that's where there's no sustaining us there's no sustaining i um yeah and in and in fact we are constantly being created um uh this is another one of my favorite quotes another school has it that the history of the universe which contains the history of our lives and the most tenuous details of them is the handwriting produced by a minor god in order to communicate with a demon um and that is very much in line with this sort of gnostic demiurges um that uh, you know, and these demiurges have no commitment to real truth. They 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 are um, 
in many ways tr- sort of tricksters and, so and like, evil and they fuck with us that's like the descartes idea the the evil genius that uh, that again both descartes and barclay are they want to deny that such a thing is possible and that leads them to right to conclude god but in this here like anything's open uh, right if if there is a true great just omnipotent god who can observe us all and bring us into existence what's to prevent there from being just like an idiot minor god who's kind of an asshole writing a letter to a demon and as a side effect of that creates our entire reality right this is <laughs> and and my favorite touch in this part of the story is the the heresy the, mm-hmm. that an 11th century heresiarch 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 conceived the sophism of the nine copper coins a paradox as scandalously famous on Talon as the uh, Eleatic Apori to ourselves so those are like Zenos's paradoxes yeah um, so this is this is a scandalous paradox like the, the hare can never overtake the tortoise or we can never get to the wall because we're always going in subdivisions right. of it. This is their version of that. But the right. paradox it's like denying the, motion, the paradox yeah. there is that there are sustaining objects. That's the paradox that this is. That, that's the heretical paradox that objects <laughs> actually exist through time. So here's the. <laughs> Here's the the paradox. On Tuesday, X is walking along a deserted road and loses nine copper coins. On Thursday, Y finds four coins in the road, their luster somewhat dimmed by Wednesday's rain. So that all there, it's like the idea, oh, it's the same coin, and that's how their luster was dimmed. (laughs) On Friday, Z discovers three coins in the road. Friday morning, X finds two coins on the veranda of his house. From this story, the heresiarch wished to deduce the reality, i.e. the continuity in time, of those nine recovered coins. It is absurd, he said, to imagine that four of the coins did not exist from Tuesday to Thursday, three from Tuesday to Friday afternoon, two from Tuesday to Friday morning. It is logical to think that they in fact did exist, albeit in some secret way that we are forbidden to understand at every moment of those three periods of time. And then the reactions to this is just hilarious. Like like the reductio ad absurdums. The, it's like you're equivocating on the use of the... Yeah, the common usage of what it means to find and to lose. They denounced the misleading detail that the coin's luster was somewhat dimmed by Wednesday's rain as presupposing what it attempted to prove, the continuing <laughs> existence of the four coins. So it's just like people trying to resolve Zeno's paradox. Yeah, they're, yeah or, they're actually right. You yeah. know, They're right to call him out on his, like, no, he's sneaking in. In the conclusion into into the language of the premise this is next level <laughs> genius on Borja's so part like it, it's just it's crazy <laughs> they explained that equality is one thing and identity another and formulated a kind of reductio the hypothetical case of nine men who on nine successive nights suffer violent pain would it not be ridiculous they asked to claim that this pain is the same one each time like things can be equivalent but not i, I have share an identity um, and they, they, then they started doing doing uh, ad hominem attacks on the heresiarch. He's motivated by the blasphemous intention of attributing the divine category of being to some ordinary coins. 
amazingly enough, these refutations were not conclusive. He's so he sort of sowed the seed of doubt. I love that. Years. Like also, <laughs> like this is written in a kind of sarcastic tone in that sense, right? Like amazingly enough, these <laughs> were these refutations did not put an end to the matter. That's my. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah so uh so then he goes on to describe the geometry and the math of talone um and the literature uh this is where he says the dominant notion is that everything is the work of one single author and their books are also different from our own their fiction has but a single plot with every imaginable permutation so that's like uh a a kind of homage or reference to also in this collection, Garden of Forking Paths. Their works of a philosophical nature invariably contain both the thesis and the antithesis, a rigorous pro and contra of every argument. A book that does not contain its counter book is considered incomplete. Now you're getting a Hegel kind of uh, allusion there. Uh, right which and he was a, a sort of idealist yes right he was yeah and here's where you get sort of the the turn into the true metaphysics so these aren't just people who believe idealism um and idealism is so crazy and wrong it is that their belief in idealism in this again super meta way their belief in idealism itself starts to crack their reality yeah so after centuries <laughs> um here's what starts to happen it's not uncommon for lost objects to be duplicated. So uh, two people are looking for a pencil. I'm not quoting here, but but paraphrasing. Two people are looking for a pencil. Uh, unbeknownst to each other, right, they, they're looking for the same pencil. One of them finds it, and so does the other one. Well, one of them finds the real pencil. One of them finds the real pencil, and the other one finds what he calls a hronir, which is a secondary object, which itself was created because of the belief that that person was looking for that pencil and did they didn't know that it had already been found. So okay, and so their belief itself is creating reality. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, I, I want to like read this. So, <laughs> two persons are looking for a pencil. The first person finds it but says nothing. The second finds a second pencil, no less real but more in keeping with his expectations. These secondary objects are called hronir, and they are, uh, though awkwardly so, slightly longer. I love that. So I, I'm trying to get just a handle on is is the assumption here that they do live in a reality like ours with sustained objects? These people on uh on Talon because it is right because otherwise there wouldn't be one pencil for them to both lose. Up until this point, I would have read this as a a. Uh, uh, the invention of a fictional world with a which is akin to a different culture that has beliefs that are so obviously not true to us because of our knowledge of science until this point where he starts saying that metaphysically this planet actually is falling prey to their beliefs but but th- there has That's, to be an underlying uh realism at first at least right that this is yes i think that you're right so so you can imagine that the history of of these people are that the the idealism has to defeat the truth of materialism and it does it can't defeat it until some amount of time has 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 passed so it takes a lot a lot of people to really believe something before it starts cracking the fabric of reality but also there has to be a reality to crack right so two people can't look for the same pencil if there's not a single pencil that is continuous over time well unless 
what he's saying is that these beliefs hadn't made their way really deeply into the the folk psychology, that they were believers in materialism and they were pretending to be idealists out of doctrinal <laughs> reasons. They were pretending they were out of doctrinal reasons, they oh, were trying to be idealists. So their belief in materialism at time one was causing the world to have persistent objects. But it wasn't until their idealism really, really started to take hold in their minds after some centuries that actually the world is. So in some sense, this is saying it was always idealist. It's just that an idealist world in which everybody believes in materialism looks like a materialist world. Right. Um, <laughs> because or else it wouldn't be metaphysically slippery enough to to just change all of a sudden. At least this is what I take it in, because this is what I think is what happens at the end with Earth. Well, so what I under, how I understand that is they live in a in a in a world that's roughly like ours, but with a crackpot sort of ideological yeah. uh, system. Um, with a well, not crack, not necessarily crackpot. It's very well worked out, but it is. Right. And all of a sudden, their belief in philosophical idealism starts to actually make philosophical idealism true where yes. it, when it wasn't before. Yeah, I, I think that this is just a, a matter of how we're describing the before. Okay. So I took it to be that before materialism was true because they all really believed in materialism. So, so I'm right. imagining a fluid world where the beliefs of the people actually, actually do influence reality and that, that at first they weren't really... There weren't maybe enough people to believe idealism to actually start cracking to change the the metaphysical reality. But I don't think it matters much whether it was metaphysically materialist and then started becoming idealist or whether it was always oh, I think it does. Like at least for well, my in, my in either case, reality has changed because of their belief. Right. The metaphysics has changed yeah. in their But see you start out I don't understand how metaphysics has changed in your view. Because it's just their, so their epistemology imagine a, it's a meta it's a meta metaphysics in some sense. So it is I hate that I said that, but but I'm trying to describe what I mean here, which is that they have a metaphysics that is materialist, and that's why materialist But they don't have that metaphysics. No, but this is what I'm this is what I'm imputing to this, right? Yeah. That that the reason that over hundreds of years it started working was because for those previous hundred years, the belief wasn't strong enough. They actually had some lay, some lay folk belief in materialism. And it was that religion, that, that metaphysical belief had to actually be adhered to. And that's why it changed. But, but I'm just saying that because it makes more sense to me that if the metaphysics was fluid from time one, that nothing changed in the rules of the universe, according to their beliefs. It's just that their beliefs changed enough that they started actually but I, so i don't yeah, know which I, one of us has the more ontologically parsimonious uh explanation but um i think you have the more internally internally the text does not say anything about my like it does not su yeah. necessarily support my view right um or at least it doesn't explicitly support it okay this is me reading it well let's let's put a pin in this yeah and then uh so so all so at first like there would just be these 
imagined objects that would actually come into reality. At first, this is really interesting because people would just lose something or get distracted, and so they would imagine something else that was slightly distorted. So it's always a little longer, and it's like, so again, that kind of Plato's idea of, and then, um, but then like the profit motive takes over and people try to systematically use this uh, this new intrusion into reality um, to create certain things. And so they try to get uh, inmates in a prison to... Um, right. they, they tell them that there are, there are tombs in riverbeds that are, are waiting to be found and they promise freedom to any prisoner who made an important discovery. Now, this is actually like... Um, you know when he says... What I wanted to say before we got sidetracked into the metaphysics, um, when... Borges says that the second pencil was uh, larger yeah. than the first one. Um, this reminds me of the the new look in psychology, the the uh, uh, the view that sort of made its way to popularity again. The view that perception itself is is uh, influenced by higher order things like beliefs and desires, and so there were these classic findings in the 1940s uh that poor kids judged quarters to be larger than rich kids because right, right? Uh, and so this is the the hoped for pencil turns out to be larger than the actual pencil because in your mind when you really want the pencil mm-hmm. um maybe it's a little more sharp and a little less worn a little longer a little bigger um than, than the actual reality yeah uh, the hoped for which actually <laughs> right. comes into play like the hoped for thing uh, so it, it sounds like they they had trouble producing hoped for things right they, so they're doing this by m- manipulating the prisoners and saying like if you find the tomb you'll be led fr- you'll be freed and that is like a an experimental manipulation right to which, like get the prisoners to really believe in it but which it uh, didn't it didn't work though it's slow like they just it was got slow. a rusty wheel um, <laughs> yeah. but then uh they just kept experimenting and with students and they got a gold mask uh an archaic sword um two or three clay amphorae and uh yeah so then there's this great line uh, group research projects produce conflicting finds. Now, individually, virtually spur of the moment projects are preferred. The systematic production of Hronier, says volume 11, has been of invaluable aid to archaeologists, making it possible not only to interrogate, but even to modify the past, which is now no less plastic, no less malleable than the future. Amazing. So, people. <laughs> So people are starting to derive these Hrone from Hrone themselves. You're shown you're shown the object of desire that created this other object, and now you you can start developing a desire for that based on the the idealist object. And he goes into an explanation of how those those metahrone are different from each other and that uh a fifth degree one is almost <laughs> uniform and those of the ninth can be confused with those of the second and those of the eleventh degree have a purity of form which the originals do not possess so the, again this is the plato thing this is the shadow of the artifact of the reflection yeah, but it's yeah. but it's weird that when you get to level 11 which is the 12th back. level of the thing it yeah. becomes perfect and this is why the duodecimal 
uh you know this is a uh, reference yeah. to the duodecimal system like the 12 is perfect in this in this but then system. it the but the, no it says the hronier of the 12th remove begin to degenerate i know but the 11th degree of hronier are the 12th objects because the first thing is the true thing and now you've got 12 objects the 11th hronier is the 12th object so you have a real pencil you have the hron which is a first degree hron and by the time you get to 11th degree hron, that is the 12th object. And that one is pure in form. Ah. And those of the 11th remove uh, exhibit a purity of line that even the... Uh, right, 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 right. So that's like the forms. The yes. forms, for some reason, are the 11th. Yes. And, and so, you know, it turns out that the number 12 of the 12 number systems, this is actually one of the reasons, I mean, our timing, our time, by the way, like the fact that there are 60 minutes in a in an hour in 12 hours in a day is because of a base 60 system. Yeah. The mathematical system of base 60 of which base 12 uh is really yeah. very related because 12 is Times divisible five. by 60. Yeah. So but I took this to be the form. Sometimes stranger and purer than the Huron is the ur, the thing produced by suggestion, the object brought forth by hope. So right, those are purely derived from nothing that exists yet. Just from the hope that you might find something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love, by the way, when he describes one of the things that's found is the mutilated torso of a king with an inscription on his breast, which has so far not been deciphered. Like just, <laughs> just like uh, that adds so much to it. It's like a torso of a king with a undeciphered text on it somebody thought that up and that's what they found and so now you're reading this it's it's a very disorienting thing to read this thing because you start to just wonder what's and this is even before you get to the postscript like it just it already feels like it's encroaching on you this story it's, you know exactly. like and and like and you have to sort of remind yourself look we're up three levels this yeah. is a fictional story about a fictional world that has a fictional world. And we're reading this and we're like, whoa, reality can encroach itself? Like, no, and this I'm is perceiving like, <laughs> it like through like, you know, based on like my environment right now and my language and my uh, all my lenses, like like that's another sort of remove. All right. So all this was the detail of Talon that was found in the 11th uh, volumes of the history of Talone that had been uh, produced by this uh, secret society. The postscript in 1947, for it's seven years later than, than when this story was written, they find all of the volumes, right? Uh, well, they find a handwritten letter, and the mystery is elucidated in the letter. I don't know if they find all yeah, so in 1944, a reporter from Nashville, Tennessee, uncovered in a Memphis library the 40 volumes of the First Encyclopedia of Toulon. Yes, okay. So now, uh, this is the part that tells exactly how this, uh, this secret society run by this fictional person named Ezra Buckley, um, who put together this secret society. He was a slave owner in Memphis. Uh, so he puts together this conspiracy, finances it, with the promise of all of the the money that he would have from his businesses and his land and his slaves. And um, they come up with this whole conspiracy to create this fictional, fantastic world. It starts encroaching itself into the real world. And finally, when all 40 volumes 
uh, are found and made known to everybody, it starts really encroaching on the world. Now, here's what I don't know. Is the idea that the 40 volumes were found, that the 40 volumes were actually produced, or that because, because early on in the story, Borges is saying they found one volume and they're trying to figure out what all of the other volumes are. And one of the friends is arguing, you can, and he uses that Latin phrase, which is out of the claw of a lion, the, the claw of the lion or something. But, it, but he's arguing, it's okay. We can reconstruct all of the other volumes with just what we know from this volume. So I kind of think that maybe they only made one volume alluding to 40 volumes and that those 40 volumes of the encyclopedia, or at least 39 of them, are Hronir. Okay, wait. So I get what you're saying. Um, so the question is, are there really 40 volumes or are they just 11 volumes? Which you could also ask no, about this story. No, like, no, no, does no. this? I'm sorry. Yeah, is there only the 11th, but it's alluding to the 40 and those create the ideas of the, the other ones and then they come into reality because of the idea of those other volumes, right? right. Exactly, yes. yeah. You know, again, there's a kind of meta-fiction narrative like it because Borges is just doing this story like a little story yeah. about the the 11th volume which it doesn't actually exist so <laughs> you know you could ask the same question about you know the the Borges story but yeah uh, just to be clear about the where we are in 1824 so at the time the conspiracy was already in place but they were doing it as if it was just on uh Ukbar. Right. And then Buckley had the idea because he's American and they were all British and European. He said he laughed at the modesty of the project. He told the man that in America it was nonsense to invent a country. So Ukbar, and this is where it goes from Ukbar to Toulon. Yeah. Uh, uh, what they ought to do was invent a planet. To that giant of an idea, he added another, the brainchild of his nihilism. The enormous enterprise must be kept secret. So right. this is where the it gets like really developed, but it was already going in the minds of all these people at like Barclay. That's right. They had planted one article on the fictional country of Ukbar, yeah. at least that we know of. Yeah. Um, and Buckley in 1824 is like, if we're going to do this. Let's do it. You know, and then now that it kind of goes horror movie almost <laughs> like these, or or exactly. definitely like horror science fiction. These things start showing up in the world that are like Hronir, right? Kill this drunk guy, and there's a cone that leaves an indentation in Bo the narrator Borges's palm. Right, they they're actual artifacts from these this from Sloan that start yeah. appearing in the world. And all of a sudden, just reality just starts to unravel. Here I am, the personal portion of my narration. The rest lies in every reader's memory, if not his hope or fear. Apparently, like, it just disintegrated the world. It says, contact with Talon, the habit of Talon, has disintegrated this world. He's writing as the narrator now. Yeah. Spellbound by Talon's rigor... Humanity has forgotten and continues to forget that it is the rigor of chess masters, not of angels. Already, Talon's conjectural primitive language has filtered into our schools. Already, the teaching of Talon's harmonious history 
has obliterated the history that governed my own childhood. Already a fictitious past has supplanted in men's memories that other past of which we now know nothing certain, not even that it is false. And then he just says, like, I, 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 the, like, essentially, like, the world is being invaded by this ideas instead of, like, it's like an alien invasion story. It's exactly like an alien invasion. It's just an invasion of ideas and idealism. Yeah. An invasion is so cool. And it's just like these secret society people who are keeping it secret, like, (laughs) It just started getting like you know you can't keep something secret long that long, right? right? So they first stumble upon the eleventh volume sent to Herbert Ash, and and uh, of course those ideas are going to start becoming memes or whatever you know or, or becoming ideas that take hold in the minds of some people. So you get here and there you get these these uh, these events occurring, and pretty soon it is. Uh, just enough people believe it the 40 things are 40 volumes are published which i still don't know whether or not it was enough to have published only one volume to get people right. and refer to the 40 volumes um <laughs> right and there's no way of determining that really from no. uh, our perspective or even borges's perspective in the story and borges's solution is to find meaning in the banality of translating something from english into spanish yeah. Which is, in fact, what Borges was already doing at the time. Like he was how he was he was making his money. He was <laughs> in a library too. He was working yeah. in a library. Yeah. All right. I think there's a key paragraph that I want to read that I think can lead to what I said was sort of my one way of reading this story. I don't think it's the only way, but it... so he's talking now about what happened after the encyclopedias were discovered and how they spread. And this is what he writes. Almost immediately, reality, quote, caved in at more than one point. The truth is, it wanted to cave in. Ten years ago, any symmetry, any system with an appearance of order, dialectical materialism, anti-Semitism, Nazism, could spellbind and hypnotize mankind. How could the world not fall under the sway of Talon? How could it not yield to the vast and minutely detailed evidence of an orderly planet? It would be futile to reply that reality is also orderly. Perhaps it is, but orderly in accordance with divine laws read inhuman laws that we can never quite manage to penetrate. Talon may be well be a labyrinth, but it is a labyrinth forged by men, a labyrinth destined to be deciphered by men. So what I take this to be, that paragraph, is we cannot accept that we don't understand the world and its workings and the law, that it's too messy and uh, and that our perspectives are too limited and that it's too complex. And so we are attracted to anything that will provide the illusion of understanding the illusion of order to the point where uh it will end up leading to our destruction and he's making it's almost i I don't want to say this isn't a didactic point by borges but by bringing in dialectical materialism and its connection with the soviet and uh and and nazism and fascism and anti-semitism he uh, he's saying that these are the this is kind this is what's happened the illusion of order and the illusion of solving history 
in one way, in the fascist way or the Marxist way, is the thing that ends up unraveling humankind. And it's, and it's always going to be seductive, but it's always going to have the potential for destruction. And, and it is an illusion. It's an illusion. Uh, I don't know whether it's important that reality is messy. It's just that it is unknowable. It is inscrutable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, That's it's right. just that and any attempt to claim that you know it, which is, I think, your point, um, is, is destined to fail. And that, those failures, and remember, this was written in 1940, the war was underway. Um, those failures were weighing on humanity yeah right this was yeah you try really hard to come up with an ordered system to explain metaphysics and it's going to fail and fail horribly and in this you know in this case in the shadow of the of the war um those failures were were very salient it's it's interesting that in this time period is there's no allusion to the war really this is the closest we get to being any yeah. kind of allusion to what is That's right. going on in contemporary uh, for Borges. And in fact, when he's writing the postscript, it's 1947. Um, right. But so he's projecting into the future, essentially like a future where it's all been, like everything has become unraveled. But I right. think the Hronir has a very kind of metaphorical import, especially the horniers that end up killing and hurting people. It is the thing that like, even though you created an illusion of order and an illusion of understanding that illusion then becomes real in its capacity to destroy people and that's what he thought fascism and the soviet interpretation of marxism was well i i think that he's saying something even what i take to be even uh even worse sort of a worse condemnation of human beings which is um, if you had just accepted that reality, that there might be an order underlying all of reality, that it was God's, it was Barclay, even a Barclay notion of God that who's through his consistent perception was, was keeping the world afloat. It is just the fact that you can't know this for sure that is leading you to seek out something else. And that something else is a system of order created by humans for humans which is in some ways an attempt at order that becomes even more messy. It's a real a labyrinth created right. by a bunch of human beings turns out to be the worst kind of reality you could imagine living in. Right? And one that would be embraced by a nihilist. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like a slave owning nihilist. Right. Um, who is. hate uh, that's it. That's this like unholy alliance between like a, the idealism of a utopian kind of vision and a nihilist. Like they like they're both attracted to this to this same thing. And I I think that that um, that what might be going on here too, and maybe it's a slightly different way that you're reading it. Is as I've been thinking about it, I've been reading it as a a worry about relativism a worry that once you actually bite the bullet and say that things are only true when somebody believes it to be true um which is not the yeah. right use of relativism but 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 a nihilism of sorts but it one that and is a, and an idealism and I, like, an ideal exists is only to be perceived and it'll <clears> depend totally on perceived the perceiver. And that if you believe it it's gonna be there right 
um, that that there is a fear that I think he's expressing that, look, we want there to be an ultimate order. And when we're being really gnarly about like these, you know, uh, these systems of order that we're basing all our hope on, um, we're getting it wrong. And that getting it wrong, the fear that uh, material, like dialectical materialism and Nazism have failed us be- can lead to this complete swing in the opposite direction, which is there is only the truth that I perceive that might actually undermine the whole fabric of reality. And I think what he's saying, what, this is, uh, I'm coming to, I think, the same conclusion as you are, but in a different way, which this, this fear of, of, of relativism is, why are you so concerned that you can't know ultimate truth? And I, right. th- I think that this is a quote, for, if I recall correctly, I, I don't remember, I might be misattributing, where, where uh, either Borges said it or he was quoting somebody who said it, um, uh, that if, if God came to you and said, on one hand, I have the ultimate truth. In the other hand, I have the search for truth. Which one do you prefer? That he would pick the search for truth. Who said that? I, so I think it was Borges. I don't remember if it was yeah. Borges quoting somebody, yeah. like as one of his favorite quotes. Um, but either way, the idea um, that, just calm down. You don't have to know everything. Yeah. Right? No. In <laughs> fact, like, and this is like, this has connections to isaiah berlin and like the 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 worry that he was expressing and the two concepts of liberty that we read and also to taoism which is very focused on just accepting that we have limited perspectives that we won't be able to understand the the world and that we'll always be blinkered by the perspective it's just that it and here's where we totally agree what borges is highlighting is our inability to accept that that right. we will that it is that that some kind of ultimate reality is not something that we will be able to solve we will right. not be able to fully ascertain it with certainty right and i think so i disagree though that barclay and descartes their mistake i think was believing that we could have certainty that that was like even putting that goal out there and maybe plato too depending on how you read plato but like the idealist aspiration like sets this whole thing into motion it, le- it, it even though they weren't relativists it will end up leading to this kind of nihilistic rel- destructive relativism so i think that this is i th- this is where it's tying together for me where i think he's saying you know uh Barclay and whoever else, they their idea about idealism was uh, the danger of it was preempted by still clinging to the belief in the ultimate perceiver. Um, and now historically, we're in a time where all of the attempts at believing in a completely orderly system have failed us deeply. Yeah, like, and might just destroy the planet. And we, yeah, exactly. Now we're tempted to turn to perhaps this idealism, but our idealism and the idealism of Ezra Buckley is one in which there is no ultimate perceiver. So now we're really paying the, we might really pay the price um, of, of the idealism uh, of Barclay without an ultimate order behind it. Um, oh, see, I, there we disagree. Like, so I don't think that, 
Like, I think that, you know, if you're writing this in 1940 and the post-Rick in 1947, it's not like, you know, the, the Marxist ideology and the, the ideology, ideology of fascism, they thought that they had arrived at the truth. That yeah. was, that was yeah. the destructive potential of those systems, is they thought they had figured out how humans and history worked. I think that you're right. But so they have two combinations. One, a belief in ultimate reality. Yeah. And two, a belief that they can achieve the, the truth. Yes. So in, whenever that happens, whenever there is certainty about ultimate reality in the hands of human beings, it turns out to be wrong. Yeah. Now you have uh, a swing in the completely opposite direction, a disbelief in any real ontological thing. And no Barclayan god to fall back on, if that's the case. So it feels like a swing in the complete opposite direction. So, so when, some, when, right? At the postscript? Yeah, date? when Is we've that... lost faith in all of the systems because, because of, you know, probably the war and everything that we've learned about it. And we go, we read Talon and we're like, oh, here's a world in which we, we could be the creators of this world. And what happens is when you try to hang metaphysics on the mind of human beings, what you get is a messy, messy labyrinth of, of ontologically unclear fucking things appearing, uh, the fabric of reality completely dying. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily get that. First of all, like the war is far from over, never mind like the the so the war with the well remember Soviet. he's writing this as if there's a reason that he's writing it from 1947 when he's writing it in 1940 i think that he's making he's making a statement about what the lesson will have been yo see i i don't know for first of all he has no reason to think in seven years everything will be resolved no but but he has no reason to make it seven years into the future if what he wants to say is what he's thinking now right there's no I think that he's looking back yeah. on. So you think? So I was reading it as like the sort of a metaphor, like the what happens at the end is kind of a metaphor for the Marxist and 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 fascist encroachments into humanity. Uh, yeah. But you're reading it as it is the consequence of those things of losing faith in yeah. uh, it is a consequence of the certainty and the metaphysical reality that is yeah. leading us to swing in the opposite direction the perhaps relativistic view and this is where th this is the sentence that i've that struck me as something um that he, that he wouldn't have had to say so your translation is a little different but captivated by its discipline humanity forgets and goes on forgetting that it is the discipline of chess players not of yeah. angels yeah, yeah, And what is the difference there? And I think that the difference to me is that a chess player is comfortable in his certainty of the very local truth of chess. Like, don't have the hubris of thinking you can know uh, everything. But you, you know what? You can analytically know chess very, very well. Don't give up on, on, on your logic. Don't give up on, on these local attempts at truth. We have the tools to learn truth. But don't think that your brain as a human being is capable of comprehending reality like an angel, right? Yeah. So it's not a rejection of the desire for orderliness. It's a rejection of the hubris of thinking that that orderliness can be understood at the deepest levels of reality. 
That's so funny. Like, so when I read that, I was thinking that, right, the, the sort of orderly rigor that chess masters have, they were then trying to take that rigor and apply it to the world, which is beyond its purview. And so it's the chess masters who are the villains there, and we didn't recognize that in time. We thought that the the idealist kind of the political idealists and the, the the that led to these destructive political ideologies we thought that you know they were actually chess masters who decided who got all of a sudden kind of megalomaniacs like oh wait it's our rigor the same rigor can apply to the the world yeah. to the messy reality or you know that's what i would say messy reality or the inscrutable laws of human psychology and of history and economics and all of that and like that's where the mistake was made but we're seduced by the rigor I think that we're not disagreeing okay, yeah. at heart because I think that we're taking something uh, slightly different from, but but both agree that it is the hubris of applying the rigor of chess to metaphysics that gets us in trouble here. It's not a diss on the orderliness of a local game like chess. Right. It is just saying like, we're good at this, but stay in your lane, dude. You're not an angel. Right. Like you can't comprehend it, but but there's no reason to abandon the rigor of of chess and for us to understand, say, you know, how to build bridges and, and how to do math. Right. But if you're starting to try to, 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 to you know, to reach behind the veil and, and tear open, you know, into ultimate reality, guess what? You are either going to fail miserably in this direction, which is become a Nazi and take over the world or, or whatever, or you're going to fail in this other direction. You're going to lose faith and try to build a, your castle upon the sand with yeah. idealism and it's going to lead to oh, yeah, like ultimate a nihilist. sloppiness. Yeah, like yeah. an actual nihilist. And uh, yeah, yeah, So, So like what I took the chess player analogy to be is like you t- you have some Silicon Valley guy. <laughs> they, they're really good at constructing their programs and their uh, – but then all of a sudden they say, wait a minute, I'm so good at this. I can figure out how to make human beings happy. Yes. And I'll design these things that will make human beings happy. And I also know how to like solve like wars and I also know how to solve like so it's like they're they're going out of what they're really good at, which is a certain way of thinking that it, that has this rigor and has this system systematic elegance to it and yes. thinking it can apply to something where that kind of thinking doesn't belong and not only does it not belong it actually has the potential to really uh, make people suffer. That's right. I think that that's right. That it is the, you know, this is the, the very salient example in, in sort of mo- the world in which we live in today, which is not everything is a coding problem, but you have had so much success right. in solving things as coding problems that you think that it can be applied to everything. And that, that my friend, is, is hubris. Right. And, 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 and the result is sort of what you say, where we're losing confidence in what's real and what's not. And it's these the coders like the Facebook, you know, like all the fake news is sort yeah. of like 
led to that happening, not intentionally, but now all of a sudden it's very hard to discern what's real and what's not and what's your perspective and what isn't and what, like, all these things. And it all comes and we're in this kind of chaotic and you know, bordering on postmodern nihilistic way of trying to figure out what the hell is going on. That's right. That's right. Um, yes, I love it. So, and Borges' solution, I want to talk a little bit about this, is fuck it, I'm going to go back to my hotel room or yeah. whatever and and translate this minor work, right? Yeah. I'm going to focus on this. In some ways, it is, you know, the... the uh, the absurdity of life shouldn't keep you from a task like this. This is what meaning is to, to Borges. Like I, my, you know, I am going to go back and focus on this task that I've just perhaps arbitrarily set for myself, but one that nonetheless is providing me with meaning. And, and it, it might seem boring. um, But guess what? I'm not trying to create a world with my thoughts. I'm trying to translate Brown. Yeah. Right. (laughs) <laughs> but it's also like by creating meaning is he and not fighting what's happening. I don't think he thinks it can be fought. But like is he just succumbing to that relativistic worry that you were pointing to? I I think that he is he is by focusing on the task set before him, he is at least not causing damage to the fabric of reality. Not further right? damage, yeah. He's not looking for a for a lost pencil anymore, right? He's like I <laughs> I know like I like I will do uh, I will do it. So the world will be Tlone. I won't pay he says I, I don't pay any attention. I'm I'm reading the Spanish version. I will I won't pay any attention. So he is purposefully not look perceiving not perceiving. It. Yeah. He's trying to not perceive. Right. Cuz he doesn't want he knows what human beings are capable of perceiving. Yeah. He might create a monster. Right. And guess what? Borges did create monsters. Yeah. That's what he's doing. He's that doing is what right he has now. done to us. And I swear to God, like there are times where I read that where I start to get a little unnerved. Like, wait a minute, like, is there a Borges? Is there like you We start- really should we should just cover Borges and I. That very, very short. Yeah. I did yeah. read it. But it, it it you do, you start to lose your bearings a little bit. This has been true in all of them, but maybe especially in this one for me, it's like you start to feel a little like vertigo. It and- is metaphysical vertigo. <laughs> it is it's fictional. It is you forget what you forget what why you know, I'm sitting there reading about the history of Tolone and I'm concerned for these people. And <laughs> right. some but like in the text he told us this is the made up ramblings of people who were made up themselves like and and that he's making up i'm making up a set of people who made up another set of people who made up another set of people who are actually having this metaphysical concern and i'm here he's popped me into so many levels that i have forgotten that this isn't the level of reality and then he brings that fourth level all the way back down or at least the down three levels and i the reader am bringing it to my level down back to the fourth level of the reader uh, this is, I mean, this is black, this is black belt fuckery right here. Yeah. This is, no, this is, <laughs> this is like, you don't like, yeah, no, it's, it's really incredible. And I love the, seriously, uh, it brings tears to my eyes a little bit right now. It does. I guess. <laughs> There's this great thing on the, again, this is the last page, the spread of Tolonian objects through various countries 
would complement that plan. Like some of the unbelievable features of Volume 11, the multiplication of Hronir, for example, have been eliminated or muted in the Memphis copy. So the Memphis copy is different than uh, (laughs) the Volume 11 that they had before. It seems reasonable to suppose that the cuts obey the intent to set forth a world that is not too incompatible with the real world. The spread of the Tolonian objects through various countries would complement that plan. So he's saying that there is part of this conspiracy is they're going to make it sound not too unbelievable. And so they, um, so first of all, they cut out some of the really outlandish stuff in volume 11. And then they also spread these objects so that it would seem like, okay, there actually is this reality. But then there's a footnote. There is still, of course, the problem of the material from which some of objects are made. So like right in their attempt to make this less outlandish, they've created these objects or at least they've brought to being these objects that, <laughs> that we have no idea how they could possibly exist. They don't fit any of our material theories of and and that's just a little footnote. There is of course yeah. the question. It's like it's purposely like, oh yeah, and I'm not I'm not forgetting this. But like right. something that's impossibly heavy and that leaves like a dent in your hand, <laughs> right? Is like, is yeah. like it can't just have been them planting it. Yeah, he is. He is. Try- yeah, he's trying to be an objective reporter, but he is giving us the answer that in fact these were brought into being by the ideas. But the but the but, but the the it's just totally incompatible with the idea that they're trying to not break too far from reality by yeah. creating something that do- that couldn't possibly exist with the way we understand the material yeah. world. I I think here he is being an un, a, a bit unreliable as a narrator. Um yeah. in in that I think in this now that you pointed to this, I think that given the differences in the 11th version of the encyclopedia and the Memphis copy, I think that the entire 40 volumes in the Mem- in the Memphis library might be Hronir <clears throat> and that the 11th is just the idea of the 11th copy that because of the imperfection has has manifested itself slightly differently which is yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right now i'm all i'm i'm further dizzy now but i think i bet if you go through this story you're gonna find contradictions of a sort in in just the internal coherence of the story itself he warned us about it he warned us about it he said like there's little things that pop up like at first he says there are contradictions in the no second he said there are contradictions in the 11th but at first he said it was a coherent a fully coherent picture there's a lot of things that are just a little bit off as and you're right he's 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 being an unreliable narrator in a way that I I can't even try to think about why, but yeah, um, I I think because only that could give us the vertigo that we're feeling. Yeah, where where at some level we have to trust the narrator, and he is he's he's doing this thing to us. In it's very important that it's in the first person because we have some trust that this is Borges talking to us and why would he lie to us? And then he's inserting all these, you know, this is what they're talking about in the very first paragraph where Casares is give, giving him the, the idea for a, a novel in which you omit or disfigure the acts over the occurrences. Yeah. Um, yeah. And three it's, different forms. Like the first is just like a mystery story of this strange right. thing that you discover. The second is a, like a, an actual sort of an account like he was just describing an account. And the third is this 
world weary, just like resigned. I'm, I give up kind of surrendering. To, it's three very different things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's like the bohemian rhapsody of, of short stories. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, the what what I also love is that there was something called the Anglo American Encyclopedia. Yeah. There really was, and it really was a, a rip off of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And yeah. it really is the case that in one of the volumes, Ukbar spelled U Q B A R would come at the very end of really? that. Yeah. I okay, I didn't know that part. Wow. Uh, if I could get a, if I were the kind of person to get a tattoo. I think I would get the tattoo in Spanish of the mirrors and copulation are abominable. (laughs) (laughs) Any tattoo artist wants to come and give it to me for free. I'll I'll become a tattoo guy. (laughs) You don't think it's too late for you? It is too late. It's far too late. Maybe with that one. Maybe with that one. (laughs) Maybe with that one. Yeah. (laughs) It's meta. It would be meta enough. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it would be like a, a Hronier impressed on your skin. On I would your write skin. it backwards so that you could only read it in a mirror. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. I need to take, I need to go home. Yes. Uh, I am so long. fully unmoored. Well, I hope home exists. Just continue believing <laughs> exactly. in home the whole time. Like, the whole time. Or listen to like, yeah, exactly. All right. I'll talk to you. Uh, or sorry. Join us last time on Very Bad Wizards.